Welcome to the Minimalists Podcast, where we discuss what it means to live a meaningful life with less. I'm Joshua Fields Milburn, and I'm riding solo today, although Ryan will be with me for our next episode. We're going to record an episode about mental clutter, but today I want to talk a little bit uh, about writing. And I get so many questions about writing, whether it's on, on social media or an email or uh, in the writing class that I teach, obviously. Or, um, of course, with the voicemails that we have as well. A lot of people ask about writing tips, tricks, uh, writing success, how to become a full-time author, things like that. And you know, I, I don't know where you are but if, if you, in terms of, of wanting to write, but I think we are all writers now. Whether you write books, blog posts, emails, tweets, or text messages, you are a writer and no matter what your preferred medium is, uh, what I hope to do today is share a few tips and, and, and best practices that I've learned over many years of writing to help you write more effectively. So this episode is going to be a little bit different. Instead of going through some voicemails and, and random questions on social media, I'm just going to sort of summarize a lot of the questions that I've gotten and, and share some tips with you. My, my first tip for today uh, when you are trying to improve your writing, and again, I, I don't care whether it's it's business emails or it is uh, you're trying to write the great American novel or a blog post or something in between, I, I find that a rising tide lifts all boats. And, and so my first tip for you is to treat your text messages like prose. So before hitting the send button, look over your text message. Check the spelling. Check the content. Check the punctuation of your text message. Ask yourself, what am I attempting to communicate? What am I attempting to express? Be more deliberate with your most common form of casual writing, the text message, and you'll automatically become more deliberate with your other medium. So when you're actually sitting down to, to write a blog post or an essay for college or you want to write a love letter to a loved one, if you've improved your writing in one area, it tends to bleed over into other areas as well. Now, those two questions are pretty important. What am I attempting to communicate? What am I attempting to express? Now, people often ask me, why do you write? Well, I, I write for two reasons, to communicate and to express myself. And so uh, let's give you a few examples of that right now. I, w when I think of purely communicative writing, I, I think of, well, a math textbook, a calculus textbook, right? You, you open up a, a textbook, and it is communicating the subject matter to you, generally in a fairly bland or banal or even vapid way. And, and that's fine if you're just trying to communicate information, but I don't ever think of a college textbook as something I want to go and curl up next to a, a warm fire on the couch and, and pull out my calculus textbook and, and begin to you know, recite the, the third chapter. That's because it doesn't express anything. It doesn't connect emotionally. So it connects intellectually, but that visceral level of connection, well, that comes from expression. And so that's the other reason why I write. I write to express myself to others. And, and so I think good writing tends to marry the two. It is communicative, but good writing is also expressive. So the other side of that, uh, the expressive side... The extreme example would be a teretic person who is on a, a subway shouting to absolutely no one at all. Maybe, maybe you've seen that person before, but the interesting thing about that is they don't require an audience at all. That that display is going to happen whether or not you are there in the first place. And so expressive writing is one thing. Communicative writing is another. But when you marry the two, you're able to form, you're able to shape interesting writing that is going to add value to the reader. Uh, the second tip I have for you, the next tip I have, is that your words are your tools. And so I think you should expand your vocabulary if you want to make your writing more precise. Now, there's no need to use a, a $10 word when the $0.10 cent word will suffice. 
but having more tools in your toolbox will allow you to select uh, the most appropriate tool for the job because sometimes you need an axe and other times you need a scalpel. And so what I've done in the past is I've picked one new word a day. Now, I, and then I'll use that word like 21 times throughout the day. And, and at first, it's very forced. You're wedging that new word into conversation because the first time you pick up an axe, you may not know how to use it very well. But over time, after you've used it repeatedly, you get good at using that tool. And the same goes for the word. So I find words uh, a bunch of different ways. Uh, you can go to just dictionary.com or you can have the dictionary app on, on your phone. I find that's a great way quite often to get a, a, a new word, although a lot of those words you'll never find to be applicable. And so the other way that I like to grab uh, new words is I tend to read books that are that outside my comfort zone a little bit, uh, a little bit uh, too hard for me at times. And uh, there are often new vocabulary words that I learn in there. Uh, the nice thing about reading on a Kindle or an e-reader is you can look up those words automatically, which is pretty nice because if I look up a word and I say, I really like that word, I would like to try to use it. And then what I'll do is I'll try to wedge it into a conversation 21 times that day. And so having a new word each day, generally I'll, generally I'll pick it the, the, uh, the day before, and then I will insert it into my conversations the next day. And at first, you're going to seem a little bit silly, right? You're going to feel like, oh, this doesn't fit. It's not me. Well, here's the thing. It's not you at first, but at one point, you didn't know any words at all. You literally knew zero words. And over time, you learn more and more and more words. I, I find this with Ella right now. She, she's, uh, she'll be three pretty soon. And, you know, she's learning all the time. And uh, we entered a little uh, a code on, on a, a door recently and uh, that locks and unlocks a door. And the, <laughs> right away she goes, ooh, that's fancy. And I'd never heard, heard her express it that way, but also communicate with, with those, those same words, those same tools. And it's because it was something she, she picked up recently. Now, did that sound like it was part of her everyday vernacular? No, of course not. It was the first time I've ever, ever heard her say that. But over time, you know, five years from now, of course, if she said that, it might be cute, but it would also sound like it's part of her everyday uh, usage. And so, so keep that in mind. When you, when you are working with these tools, they will become easier to use over time. And so your words are your tools. Find a way to expand your vocabulary, not to sound smart. That's not the point of this. In fact, that would be a terrible reason to expand your vocabulary. The reason you want to expand your vocabulary is to add precision to your writing. And I tend not to write anything unless I would also speak it as well. And, and I think that's a, a sure sign of, of weak writing when you see someone trying to look smart in their writing and use these big $20 words when, when they would never, and they, heck, they probably can't even pronounce those words in real life, and yet they're using those words in text. Well, that just makes you come off as pompous. And so I would never write a word that I don't use in my everyday vocabulary. My next, uh, my next tool, my, my next uh, tip for you is uh, to do it daily, to write daily. Uh, I think if you want to improve your writing, you should write every day. Make writing a daily habit. I, I look at writing as a muscle, and if you don't use it, you will lose it. And, and for me, uh, the, the best way to guarantee consistent writing was, was twofold. First off, uh, I, I, I was told these four words, the, the four words that really changed my habits, my writing habit, sit in the chair, sit in the chair. A, a writer named Don, Donald Pollock said this, and man, it really stuck with me because I realized that writing is this weird craft that we expect to learn via osmosis somehow, that I want to be a writer, I am an aspiring writer, and therefore I am going to be a writer without actually doing the craft. The strange thing is I don't see this in many other creative fields or any other creative fields that I can think about. Uh, when, when you see a carpenter, he's not an aspiring carpenter. He either is a carpenter 
he or she is a carpenter or he or she is not a carpenter, right? And, and the same goes for most other professions. What makes you a carpenter is that you are into carpentry. You, you do the work. And for a writer, that means sitting in the chair uninterrupted, doing the work every day. Now, for me, I first became enthralled with writing in my early 20s. I, I was actually very late to the game. I didn't like reading as a child. And, and then I discovered literature in my early 20s, uh, originally through some sort of uh, vapid popcorn fiction uh, 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 genre, paperbacks from the airport kind of thing. But in time, I discovered literary fiction uh, through the works of uh, people like Brad Easton Ellis and, and David Foster Wallace and uh, Mary Carr, who uh, writes some incredible uh, uh, memoirs, and, and some other folks as well. And I found this amazing exchange of consciousness that was going on between the author and the reader. And it didn't require a, a direct interaction. In fact, the author may have been dead for 50 years I could still have this exchange of consciousness. I could see what was going on inside that author's head, and that made me want to write because it made me want to. It, it gave me an avenue to express myself in a different way that I didn't see possible uh, before. And I don't see any other creative medium that really communicates and expresses as profoundly as writing. I think music often comes close. Uh, I don't think that it, it does it exactly the same way. In fact, it can, it can do things that writing can't, for sure. But writing was this exchange of consciousness that I'd never really experienced before. And, and that started with literature for me, but then other kinds of writing, uh, whether it was nonfiction or prose poetry or, or a bunch of other types of writing, uh, I learned that you could communicate with someone in a way that really resonated with them viscerally. It resonated with them on an emotional level because you're also able to express yourself. And that's what made the writing stick for me. Not the rote memorization of a calculus textbook, but the communicative nature of expressive communication. And so I, I decided that sitting in the chair after hearing uh, Donald Ray Pollock who has written a couple of amazing books. Uh, the Devil All the Time is a novel he wrote, which is amazing, and a short story collection called Knock'em Stiff, which is uh, an actual town in Ohio, near Chillicothe, Ohio. He, uh, and, and he grew up there, and it's kind of a ghost town now, actually. But uh, it's called Knock'em Stiff, and, and there's a good backstory there. And if you want to read the book, you can check it out, uh, Sean. If you can put it in the show notes, that'd be great. Um, but he said, sit in the chair with no distractions. So no cell phone, no Wi-Fi, no internet, none of the stuff that's going to get in your way. Uh, don't have the TV on in the background. Because here's the thing. When I was an aspiring writer throughout most of my 20s, what did that mean? Well, it meant I aspired a lot, but I didn't actually accomplish much. I, I didn't get uh, much done because I set up too many rules for myself early on. When I was aspiring to write, I'd say, yeah, I will write. I just have to have everything perfect. I have to have my, my writing program set up just right, and my computer needs to be fully charged, and I have to have my pen and my pad next to me, and oh, i got to make my cup of coffee, and I need, oh, you know what? I forgot to put the laundry in the dryer. I've got to go do that. And so I'd make up these 15 rules that, of course, would always prevent me from getting the work done. They'd prevent me from sitting in the chair because if you set up a, a, enough sort of draconian rules to get started, you'll never get started. There's always going to be something that gets in the way. And so the way that I was able to start sitting in the chair, those four profound words, is I was able to remove as many rules as possible. For me, that meant getting up uh, a little bit earlier. I, I already enjoy getting up early now. I, I like to get up around 3.30, and, and that's naturally whenever I can. But I'll tell you this, uh, I removed the rules. My only rule for writing now is that I have to get out of bed. That's the rule. You have to, and so as soon as I wake up, I don't lollygag, I don't, I don't, I don't stick in bed and, and pull the covers over my head. I, I wake up and I will get up and I will start writing. And, and, and that is what's important to me. That's the only rule that I need to be successful. Now, if I could figure out how to eliminate that rule and, and write in my sleep, then 
Yeah, maybe if you have some tips, let me know on Twitter. I'm at JFM there. I'd love to know how you write in your sleep. Although I do keep a, a notepad by my bed, so I have to wake up to actually write that down, though. Although sometimes I'm half asleep when I write it down because I'll wake up in the middle of the night and I'll have this notepad and I'll write down the most profound thing. And then when I wake up in the morning, it is just gibberish. And I think, what, what the hell was I thinking last night? Now, occasionally there will be a nugget or two in there, so I, I find it to be important. It's not a total waste. But for every nugget, there is a, a giant heap of dung that I have to go sifting through generally. And so sit in the chair was really important to me. Eliminating those rules was, was really important to me. And I, I like to write about three hours a day, every day now. And, and I find that to be important too to, for, for consistency. And um, when I started though, I didn't have those three hours a day. I was working 80 hours a week in the corporate world. Now, I can't tack on another 21 hours on top of that. There are only 168 hours in a week, and we need how many of those to sleep? And so we have, what, uh, um, 100 to 120 waking hours, depending on, well, hopefully you're sleeping enough. Uh, Hopefully you're sleeping seven, eight, nine hours a night. But we we just talked about that in the last episode, the health episode. So, So, you know, I realized that I needed to do something, and especially to get some momentum, because I had no inertia. I was an aspiring writer, but I wasn't writing. I needed to do something. I needed to sit in the chair. I needed to do it every day. That's this tip. Do it every day. Well, you know what? I got up an hour early. So instead of getting up at 5.45 every morning, I would get up at 4.44 every morning. I had my alarm set for 4.44. I'd roll out of bed. I'd start writing. And that's how I would start my days. And boy, did I feel productive because by 5.45, when my second alarm went off and I knew I was done writing, I had already accomplished so much. So I didn't worry about word count or page count. I know that helps some people. So if that helps you, great. For me, what I worried about was hour count. How long was I sitting in the chair undistracted, not allowing myself to be interrupted by tweets or Facebook or whatever. And the reason I, I recommend three hours to, to many people now is it takes about 22 minutes on average for a creative person to get into flow state. Now, yours could be totally different. It may be 15 minutes for you. It might be 45 minutes for you to get into that flow state. I don't know where you are, but I find that to be about true for me. It's, it's around the 20-minute mark. But if I allow a tweet to creep in and I'm, I'm all, all of a sudden responding to Twitter for three to five minutes... I've interrupted that flow state. So let's say I do that twice in an hour. Well, I'm actually never going to get into a flow state in that hour if I'm interrupted every 20 minutes and it takes me 22 minutes to get into that state. And so being uninterrupted is really important because if I spend the first 20 to 30 minutes just really getting into that state, well, everything after that is gravy. And so spending the additional hour, two hours, or three hours in the chair allows me to be far more creative in the long run without, without, a, lot, without a lot of breaks or a lot of interruptions. And I find that to be, to be important. I also find it important to plan a stop at some point because you don't want to burn yourself out. And so, so if you have a three-hour break, you can stop mid-sentence. In fact, if you stop mid-sentence, it often leaves you somewhere creative to start the next day, and so you can pick up the work right away. The other way I've found to make my writing more consistent and hold myself accountable is to start a blog. In fact, I would tell you that the, the best creative decision I've ever made, or maybe you could call, could call it a professional decision, although it wasn't initially a, a professional decision, was to start a blog. And I didn't really know it at the time that it would completely change my life. But when Ryan came to me with the idea of, you know, we should communicate this nonfiction story. See, I was completely ignorant to the whole nonfiction genre in terms of writing. The only nonfiction writing I had done prior to starting The Minimalists was some vapid corporate emails. And even those, I tried to make a little bit more fun and and creative because otherwise, if they're just communicative, I'm not expressing myself. And that doesn't seem very interesting to me. And and it's going to be harder to get people's buy-in. And so I I would write business emails, but that was the extent of my nonfiction endeavor in terms of writing. But I found that starting a blog, in fact, Ryan and I didn't even know it was called a blog when we first started it. We, we called it a website, and we didn't know what a blog or a blog post was. A, a blog post was, was what I thought. I thought a blog was where 83-year-old women catalog pictures of their cats. And it turns out those are just the really popular blogs. And so 
we started a website and we started writing essays because that's what we were familiar with. You'd read essays in the New Yorker or the Atlantic or, or something like that. And so we write, started writing these short essays about our lives, about our separate journeys into minimalism and, and about our experience growing and, and our trials and tribulations, our failures, our successes, our experiments. And we changed over time. And what was really interesting about that is I found out that I was writing fiction for the better part of a decade uh, because I didn't have a very interesting life to write about in the first place. But when I started making some fundamental changes in my life, my, my life started becoming more interesting. It became noteworthy, literally noteworthy, as in taking down notes and then writing about those experiences. And so people often ask, how do I know what to write about? Well, you can write fiction and you can write about whatever you want. I, I think it was uh, David Foster Wallace who, who said that, Writing fiction is creating from complete silence, and writing nonfiction is creating from absolute noise. And so they are radically different. You, you're starting with functionally nothing on, on the side of fiction. You can make whatever you want to make. You can make fairies who ride spaceships, and uh, they're fighting off... Um, you know, unicorns. Whatever you want to make, you can you can make. But with with nonfiction, you're trying to tweeze out the truly interesting elements of of what's going on around you and and making it palatable to to the reader. And so, starting a blog had allowed me to develop that habit and also develop that skill in front of an audience. Get a lot of feedback from people. Now. We certainly didn't have a readership at first, definitely not 5 million people. In fact, the, the first month we figured out how to track traffic, 52 people visited our website. And I know that doesn't sound impressive to many people, but the truth is that I was really excited that 52 people were showing up and finding value in what we were writing because, truth be told, I spent the better part of a decade just writing fiction. And the only people who read my stuff was... Well, the only people who who read it really were, were you know, agents who said no or publishers who said no. Basically, people who told me no it wasn't very good, and I thought they were crazy, but unbeknownst to me, a lot of it actually was bad. It took getting the bad stuff out there, what uh, uh, Anne Lamont calls the, the shitty first draft. Uh, get it, getting the words onto the page was really important so that you know, it's it's practicing, basically. and And I liken it to to a, a jam session, basically. I got this from our, our fearless producer, Sean Harding, here. He's also an amazing editor and writer. And he, he talked to me about this, this metaphor of jam session writing. You get a band together in a room, and they just start jamming. It's not meant for tape. It's not meant to be recorded. Your first draft of something often needs to be just that it needs to be a jam session. No one's. It's not meant to be read. It's not meant to be, be uh, scrutinized like some sort of uh, college assignment, right? It, it is meant to just get the words onto the page. You'll actually hear people say that it is um, a stream of consciousness writing. Now, I, I don't necessarily believe in, in stream of consciousness the same way. I think uh, I think language is uh, comes after consciousness. So. Um, we can get into that into some other podcasts. But, but anyway, I prefer to look at it as a jam session when I'm getting the words onto the page. So I spend about, well, we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. It's a future tip. But I spend most of my time actually rewriting. Good writing is, is, is rewriting. And the best way for me to start improving my writing, growing in my writing, was to start a blog. And we'll throw in, in the show notes. Ryan and I wrote uh, an essay called How to Start a Successful Blog Today. And we write about the sort of 15 reasons you should blog, 20 reasons you shouldn't blog. And then also, uh, probably just as important, the, the step-by-step process we went to, to to set up our blog. It was relatively easy. And I tell you, I didn't know anything about starting a blog when we first started. I couldn't even spell HTML, let alone set up a blog. 
but we, we figured out how to use WordPress and, and install some themes really easily. And so setting up a blog was way easier than I thought. And the only thing I wish I would have done was start it much earlier. So if you want to see our recipe, we'll throw that in the show notes, or you can just go to theminimalists.com slash blog and read that essay. It's a fairly long one, but it is a step-by-step recipe, how to start a, sec- a successful blog today. My next tip for you is a basic one, but it is important. Punctuation is pace. So to add variety, velocity, and cadence to your writing, I encourage you to play around with with different punctuation. Uh, Periods, commas, m dashes, colons, semicolons. Short sentences communicate tension. Longer run-on sentences, on the other hand, help establish a frantic, hurried rhythm a feeling that the pace is picking up as the words tumble onto the page. And so uh, I, I find that by adding variety to the sentences or how we're communicating, the best way to do that is with punctuation. That is going to communicate to the reader where we are in the, the brain of the character or the author or the, the, the brain voice of the, the writing, the narrator, uh, whatever it may be. They're just the business email, if you w- want to write something that communicates tension, you're going to have short, choppy, punchy sentences, right? Bam, 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 bam. And and if you want to maybe communicate chaos, you're going to have longer, run-on-ish sentences that that tumble onto the page. And so find the right punctuation. Again, going back to my very first tip, the best way to play around with that, to get good at it, is do it in your text messages. Play around with the punctuation in your text messages to try to communicate in these little short bursts and you'll be more effective in your longer writing as well. My next tip for you is to avoid throat clearing. Blogs, books, and social media uh, blog posts, or social media posts, rather, uh, are are littered with, I think, unnecessary intros, solipsistic digressions, and avoidable drivel. I say ditch the nonsense and state your points. When in doubt... I find that it's best that I'll delete my first two paragraphs in a blog post and see if the writing improves. Too often, I, I see this when I am reading a blog or someone sends me a link to a blog post or an article somewhere, and it's a sure sign of amateur writing. Someone is throat clearing at, at the very beginning of a blog post. They want, they want to say, I'm sorry, I haven't written in a while. Well, no one really cares. It, half the people who are reading it don't even know you haven't written in a while. Why? Why would you uh, begin with an apology unless it's unless it's you know ironic or something? There are ways that you could do it, but but an apology like that is just a little bit of throat clearing, and that's silly. Get to your point, and I find one of the ways to do that: delete the first two paragraphs. Does it make my writing better? And often the answer is yes. Delete, 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 delete. Why delete so much? Well, that's my next tip. Don't waste the reader's time. Our time and attention are two of our most precious resources. So it is uh, selfish to force the reader to spend 15 minutes reading something that could have and should have been communicated in 90 seconds. So if you want to earn your reader's trust, don't waste his or her time. I mean, come on. Let's think about this. We, We are on social media, and so we say, well, it's free for them to read. It's free for them to follow me. It's free for them to read my blog. It's free for them to subscribe to my email. Yeah, it's free monetarily, but that's a very narrow way to look at it. It's not free for them to read your, your blog. You're asking for their most precious resources. You're asking for their time and their attention. What's more precious than that? Money is a renewable resource. You can't renew your time. Once you've given it up, you've given it up. And so... I don't want to waste my reader's time. In fact, that's why you'll look at our, you may look at our um, blog posts, uh, what I would call an essay, and and generally they are, well, they start out at about 2,500 words quite often, and then I will narrow it down to 700 words, 500 words, 400 words. Sometimes I'll copy or cut a paragraph from the entire 2,500-word blog post and say, you know what? These two paragraphs alone are truly communicating what I want to communicate. And so I give my readers credit. 
I know that they're smarter than, than we pretend they are. We, we, we pretend a lot of people need to have everything dumbed down to them. Well, that's silly. Readers are smarter than you think. And so you don't have to show them the entire iceberg. If you show them the tip of the iceberg, they know that it is an iceberg. Don't waste their time spending 2,500 words communicating something that could be communicated in a sentence or two. And that, get, that goes for social media and everything else. And so when I, when I whittle it down to 500 words, uh, Sean may, may you know, uh, get out his scalpel and cut another 100 words from it and, and just make it a little bit tidier. And so having someone else to help keep you accountable is also really important. Having someone who you can share your writing with, whether that's online or a close uh, friend, family member. It doesn't need to be a person who's a writing expert. In fact, some of the best writing advice I- I've gotten are just from friends. They may not, may, they may not be able to give me the, the grammatical or, or syntactical uh, tips that, that Sean can give me, but other people can say, you know what, that really resonated with me, and here's the part that I loved. And that's especially proven true with with uh, a lot of the books that we've written. So Ryan and I have written three books together. I also published a novel when I was age 30, so uh, Ryan and I wrote a book called Minimalism, Live a Meaningful Life, a fairly short book. I think it's maybe 120, 130 pages long in its final form. The first draft of that was 300 pages, and we, we realized it was called Minimalism, a 300-page book about minimalism. Wait, we can taste the irony here. And we wrote about that in the, the intro of the new edition uh, of the book because we basically deleted the whole thing and started over and said, we can communicate this differently and, and found a way to delete a lot of it. And the uh, same goes for other books. Uh, Everything That Remains, which is my favorite book of ours, was over 700 pages. I think it was, it was uh, about 750 pages at, at its bloated zenith. And what we realized is that, you know what, we really want to get this down to something that is palatable. Now, these weren't 750 publishable pages. Don't, don't mistake me here and say we were going to publish a 750-page book. That was never the intent, but it took creating a lot to be able to whittle it down to something that was truly meaningful. Now it's about 200 pages in its, in its final state. We also have an essay collection called Essential, which we put out a new edition of last year in, in 2015. And man, Sean, that was what, 700, 800 pages when we were going through it. And, and it's about 300 pages now. And the reason it was it was so bloated at first is we were we knew we had to put everything in there, all of the best of the minimalists. It's an essay collection, and so now it has about 150 essays in it. But it originally had about 340, 350 essays in it, and we we whittled it down, and and we kept arguing and fighting and and saying, I really want this. Oh no, it's communicated there, and I think it's better communicated like this. And eventually, we got it down to something that was palatable. Same with uh, as a decade fades, although that's a little bit different. That's a novel I published when I was 30, and. I actually spent most of my 20s writing that novel, mid, mid and late 20s, I should say. And so a lot of the writing in there is a good representation of my 25-year-old self. I spent about 1,000 pages on that book to get it down to its 250-page state now. And, and I think what's important there is I put a lot of work into it, and, and I was willing to, you know, who is it, Fitzgerald, Kill Your Darlings? Faulkner. Yeah, that's right. So it's Faulkner, the uh, Kill Your Darlings. What, what I would say is make the page bleed. And, and so I will often bring out that red pen and, um, and, and just get down to deleting, deleting, deleting. And, and I think that's, that's going to be really important. In fact, it'll, it'll be important for an upcoming tip here. All right, so my next tip is 30% composition, 70% editing. So for every hour you spend writing, I recommend spending three hours editing shaping your work into something more concise, more powerful, more beautiful. Writing, well, good writing at least, is rewriting. And so keep that in mind. As I went through those other books and said, okay, As a Decade Fades was a thousand pages. Again, not a thousand publishable pages. It was getting that shitty first draft onto the pages, the second draft being slightly better, moving things around. In fact, with that book, the main character was originally a different main character, and that didn't come around toward the very end. I think I was 27, 28 years old when I, when I sort of found that main character. It was a totally different character. It was written from a, a different perspective, a first-person perspective instead of a third-person perspective. It was also originally written in a, a 
present tense and instead of a past tense. And so I was able to adjust those things through various drafts. But the important thing was not to find the perfect tense and the perfect perspective and, and, and the perfect characters and have everything be perfect because if your affinity for perfection is high, you'll never actually put the words on the page. Realize that once you put the words on the page, you, you're just you're, you're heaping this pile of rock together right now. And, and the metaphor I like to use when, when you think of Michelangelo sculpting uh, the statue of David, he, he didn't start with the statue of David. He started with this huge chunk of marble, and he had to start cutting away. And, and the difference with writing is we also have to create the marble from which we sculpt. And so that first draft of, uh, of words that no one's going to read, I actually call it a zero draft when I'm going through it, just getting the words onto the page. That zero draft is important because it gives us the marble from which we're going to sculpt our version of, of David. And even if that's a, a business email or a text message, you can have a shitty first draft in your text message. I know when I'm texting people and, and that those little, that little bubble comes up and they see that I'm re- replying to them, they have to be like, why is he taking so long to respond to me? Because I'm trying to craft a, a message to, to them that honors them with brevity. It honors them with clarity. And I, I often fail at that, but I do my best to be both expressive and communicative, even, even in that sense. And so creating that huge, huge um, pile of, of marble is important. That, that, that chunk of marble is important. So that first 30% of my time I spend writing. And so you could say for every one day that I'm spending writing, I'm going to spend three days editing. I'm going to pour the words onto the page. Now, for you, that might be slightly different. You might say, I'm going to spend two days writing and four days editing. You know, it, It's really up to you to determine what's right for you. But don't underestimate the, the editing. And the way that I, I do that is during the composition process, the jam session writing. I'll give you a few tips here. But, but uh, the jam session writing, I make sure I treat that as junk. It is truly a jam session, just getting it out there. I know that it's not being recorded. I know I can mess up. There can be spelling errors. There can be syntactical errors. There can be grammatical errors. There, there can be uh, errors in tense. There can be errors in accuracy. There can be all of these errors. It's just about getting it onto the page, getting it out of you so you have something to work with later. And, and once I once I get it, now now here's the thing. Often people get they get so caught up because we we've trained ourselves to be our own self editors in the moment, and and that will kill your writing if you're constantly self editing that jam session. And so what I tell my students, my writing students, is that, you know what? You're going to have to find a way during composition to always stave off the self-editor. That is so important. Don't allow yourself to edit your own work as you're writing it. That will come during the editing process, and you'll learn to enjoy both sides of, of the process, the composition and the editing side of things. And so if you're not able to stave off the self-editor at first, and I know that's really difficult. I've, uh, when, when Ryan uh, took my writing class, that was the, the thing he found most difficult, and a lot of my students find that difficult too, is, oh, I just wrote that sentence. Let me go back and change something. Let me change this. Let me change that. Let me change that. So if you're having trouble staving off the self-editor, here are a couple tips for you. You can either get high-tech with it, pseudo-high-tech, I guess. Whatever writing program you're using, I use one called Scrivener. Uh, But whatever writing program you're using, you can turn your text to white, so white text onto white background, and therefore you can't see what you're writing, and you're just dumping those words out, punctuation errors, spelling errors and all, just getting it out there. Or you can get low-tech. You can just tape a piece of paper over the screen and just keep writing. Keep, keep writing. Spend those hours in the chair and, and let it pour onto the page. You'll be able to edit it later, and it will be frustrating. It'll be difficult at first, but it'll be so worth it. Now, many of my students, they, they, they have trouble with this, and so one of the things, one of the analogies I'll have them do is um, take a piece of paper out, and so if you want to try this with me, you're welcome to do it. I'll, I'll do it right now. Um, take a piece of paper out, and in one second, I'm going to have you write your name, okay? And, and you're just going to write your full name how you normally would write your name. 
Uh, if you're signing a check or you're just writing it down on a piece of paper, you can print, you can sign it, you can do whatever you want. However, you would typically write your name on a piece of paper with a pen. All right, on three, we're going to do it together. One, two, three. All right, done. Put your pencils down. Um, it took me less than four seconds to do it, about three and a half seconds to write my name. Okay? Now, here's we're going to do the same thing. We're going to write half of your name, but we're just going to do every other letter. Okay? And so with me, that'll be like, I don't know, J and then S, and then we'll just keep going down the line until we get to the very end of our name. Same exact way you would have written it, but skip every letter. So it'll be half the time, right? Ready? One, two, three, go. Still going. Oh, I messed up. That's all right. Keep going. Oh, all right. What was that, like 14 seconds? Uh, I think that, uh, well, that, that doesn't make any sense, right? Well, why does it take three or four times as long for me to write my name when it's half as short? Well, it's because we're not used to it, right? So you're not going to be used to composition this way but it's going to make you better because here's the thing. If you, were to keep write, if you were to keep writing every other letter and you did it every single day over the course of two months, three months, a year, you're going to cut down your, your, the time it takes to write your name by 40%, 50%. And, and that's what's important. You're, you're actually going to improve even though it's more difficult at first. And, and that's what is important to understand here. By, by changing your pattern, you're going to change the way that you create meaningful writing for other people. And so be willing to get stuck in the composition and then move over to the, the, the editing portion on a different day, returning to the text that you composed and making it into something, shaping it into something more concise, something more powerful, something more beautiful. Because good writing is truly, it's just rewriting. My next tip for you is something I call narrative urgency. What is narrative urgency? Well, I, I think that every sentence that you're writing should serve a purpose. Your first sentence must make your reader want to read the second sentence. Now, the second sentence is a little bit different. The second sentence must make your reader want to read the third sentence, right? So forth and so on. That goes for a business email. That goes for a blog post. That goes for a Facebook status update, and that certainly goes for a novel. One of my favorite pastimes, I'll go to a bookstore, and I'll just start reading first sentences. I love going to a bookstore, cracking open just a random book and reading that first sentence. Does it draw me in? Why do I call that narrative urgency? Well, does it create urgency? Does it make me want to read the next sentence? If so, I keep reading. If not, I stop. In fact, a uh, common practice of mine is if a book, if I, it, I don't get past page 50 in a book usually unless it's a masterpiece. It's because I, I don't want to waste my time finishing a book just for the sake of finishing. Now, I realize that some books get really good after page 180. They're, uh, uh, American Psycho is a really great example of that. I remember uh, just sort of drudging through it. And uh, it, it was you know, a phenomenal book for me in my early 20s. And it made me realize you could do satire in a way that didn't seem like conventional satire. But, but anyway, um, for the most part, I do not make it past page 50 unless there is something really special going on because every sentence needs to serve the next. So uh, when we talked earlier about, about kill your darlings, let's make it a little more graphic. Kill your babies. These are things that you've created. You've birthed these words onto the page. But guess what? Don't get too tied to it. Be willing to let go of everything. I, I know. I know how beautiful that sentence is that you, that you crafted. I realize how madly in love you are with that alliteration, that clever twist of phrase, that really cool punctuation, that, that line that character said. That's all great, but if it doesn't serve a purpose in the narrative, you have to be willing to let it go. I know that's hard, and so deleting is important. And you can create a new, a new draft if you want, and that way you, you have your zero draft that's just sitting there elsewhere, and you, you, you still have that composition. Should you cho choose you want to go back to it, you can resuscita resuscitate your babies, I suppose. But you know what? Having that zero draft there as a backup is fine, 
then it'll allow you to delete, 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 and then keep deleting until you've gotten down to the most urgent thing that is going to allow your first sentence to take the reader to the second sentence. It's going to propel them to the third sentence, and it's going to propel them all the way to to the end of your blog post, all the way to the end of your novel, your memoir, your nonfiction book, your tweet, your email, whatever it may be. It's going to get the reader to the end of that in a way where they stay interested. They stay emotionally and intellectually engaged. That narrative urgency will allow them to do that. My next tip for you is to avoid too many adverbs. This is a sure sign of amateur writing. The overuse of adverbs, especially L-Y adverbs. A woman in a story isn't incredibly pretty. She's beautiful. The sky isn't very blue. It's azure. Find the right words, and that will allow you to avoid using adverbs as crutches. And I think the reason that we do this in writing so often is that it's how we, we, we do in our everyday vernacular. We'll say it's incredibly difficult. It's just difficult, right? You don't have to say it's extremely this or incredibly that or, or, or whatever. Avoiding these adverbs will make your writing tighter and, and more precise. And, and so, again, the best way to do that as you find any L-Y adverb in your writing, delete it, and then reread the sentence aloud. That's really important. In fact, in, in Missoula and back in Dayton, Ohio, I'm often known as the, the guy who looks somewhat schizophrenic because I write aloud when I'm walking to try to get pace and, and, and diction down appropriately. And so you have all of the, you have tone, you have timber. Your writing takes a shape. The, your author's voice takes a shape, and, and so reading it aloud is really important, and then delete and reread the thing aloud. And does that make the writing more powerful? Often, yes. In fact, yes for a few reasons. One is because you've eliminated the excess, and isn't that what minimalism is about? And oh, by the way, the other adverbs that stay in because they really do make sense to be there, they're more powerful. They now hold more weight, and that makes your writing better. My next tip for you is follow the rules and then unfollow the rules. You should learn the rules so you can break them effectively. So uh, I'm going to recommend a couple books at the end of this the, the podcast here because I think it's important to not get too tied up in the rules but know what the rules are so you, that you can, you can break them because otherwise your writing is going to look haphazard, your... Your um, composition will will feel stilted because you don't know which rules you're breaking and which rules you are not. And if you are breaking the rules, you're not going to know why you're doing it. And so understanding what, what the rules of, of basic grammar are, sentence structure, etc., that's all, that's all great. But then you can learn how to split infinitives, and you can learn how to have run-on sentences. You can learn how to have sentence fragments. These things work very effectively in certain contexts as long as you know why you're using them. And so you, know, we, you can learn about more advanced grammatical rules as well um, or, or, or tactics like polysyndeton or asyndeton, which I won't, I won't go into detail with right now. But it's uh, these, little, these little tools that will help you improve your writing add a little bit more precision, add more brevity, but also add more, more life to your writing by, by being willing to change those rules over time. Uh, my last tip for you is to read more about writing. Now, I don't like writing about writing. I think writing about writing is like kissing your beautiful sister. Ugh. No, what, what, I, what I do want to do, though, is I want to improve my writing. I really enjoy writing. I very rarely write about writing. In fact, talking about writing, this will likely be the only writing podcast that I do. But you should learn more about writing, and part of that has to do with reading about writing. So uh, a couple tips for you here. Um, 
whether it's reading grammar books or, or different things like that. But also, you can find a bunch of articles online. If you, I have a How to Write Better Facebook page and How to Write Better Twitter feed. It's all free stuff, but we, we tweet out tips and articles about, about writing and, and grammar and uh, usage and uh, the, the origin of words and we, just a bunch of writing tips, basically. And so you can find us at uh, facebook.com slash to write better. That's T-O, write better. And uh, same on Twitter, at to write better. You can find the, the how to write better there. But find ways to improve your writing, whether that's with, with articles, with books, etc. I, I would definitely encourage you to do that. You can also uh, take a writing class. You can get with other people who are writers and, and find ways to, to help them and also have them help you read each other's work, offer comments, positive criticism. It's still criticism. You're helping them improve, but in a way that isn't meant to, to be simply uh, negative criticism. It's a critique of the work to help them grow and allows you to contribute as well. So sort of a mutual benefit there. All right, and I'd love to hear what you have to say about writing. What writing tips do you have? Uh, do you have other tips for us as well? You can leave us a, a voicemail at 406-219-7839. We'll air some of our favorite comments and tips on the next episode. And now I'd like to move on to, uh, real quick, our added value portion of the show. And this is where we recommend something that has added value to our lives. And this is, because I'm talking about writing right now, uh, the the two books that in in my writing class I ask students to read there is a book the the required reading is a book called Grammatically Correct and it's by a woman named Anne Stillman and man she just does an awesome job not being too prescriptive with with her book and she makes it interesting enough it's expressive enough but still communicates plenty of the rules and. If you're like me, at first it'll drive you crazy because she isn't very prescriptive, and I want a prescription. Here is the definitive rule. Well, well, let's think about that for a minute. Language is invented by humans and changes dramatically over time. Shakespeare was supposedly modern English, and it is radically different from how we write and talk and communicate today. And so language is fluid. It is ever-changing. And so she presents a great snapshot, a picture of the best uh, standard written English, but also allows for deviations from that. And so grammatically correct, we'll put a, a link to that in the show notes. And the other book is Gardner's Modern Usage Dictionary. Now, it's not a traditional dictionary where you look up words, but it is a usage dictionary. And Brian Gardner is a grammarian and a lexicographer, and he does a phenomenal job also not being too prescriptive, but, but providing us with turns of phrases and, and rules, very specific rules around usage. It's a very big book. If you were to throw it down at your doorstop, it's going to sound like a bomb goes off. But it is a very useful reference. And so I keep those two books fairly close to me. They're on my bookshelf. They're often referenced because they help me be a better writer, especially when I'm thinking about a rule. Is it different than or different from or different to? Oh, yeah, that's right. It's different from, unless you're in Great Britain or Australia, different to works there as well. But in everyday vernacular, we may say different than. This cup is different than that cup. But that's not correct in good writing. And so you'll be able to figure out those little usage quirks and many, many, many of them as a reference guide in, in Gardner's book. I think he does a phenomenal job. It's the best usage dictionary that, that I've ever seen. All right, real quick, I'd love to move on to right here, right now. This is uh, some news updates from The Minimalists. As you probably know, we have a film coming out, Minimalism, a documentary about the important things. Ryan and I are hitting the road uh, in about a week, actually. Wow, uh, this, is, this is awesome. We're going to more than a dozen cities, and most of them are sold out, but we still have some tickets left in Boston and Miami and Dallas and Seattle. Although by the time this posts, I don't know whether or not there'll still be tickets in all of those cities. But if your city sold out or if we are not coming to your city, don't worry. The film premieres May 24th, 2016 in a whole bunch of cities, 400 cities across the United States. Now, 
this isn't like a traditional release. This is a limited release, meaning in those 400 cities, it will play for one night only in most of those cities. So the only way to ensure that it will play in your city, it will actually screen in your city, is if you get your if you reserve your tickets in advance. So just go to minimalismfilm.com. You can see the trailer there, and you can just click on See the Film, find the theater closest to you. Uh, next week, we have our final uh, Tuesdays with the Minimalists. Ryan and I have really been enjoying this, but right before we go on the road, we're going to have our final uh, episode of Tuesdays with the Minimalists on Periscope and Twitter. So if you've been enjoying that, join us for one last episode on Twitter and Periscope. We're at the Minimalists on, on both platforms. Uh, speaking of being on tour, you can still follow us on, on Twitter and Periscope and Instagram and, and Facebook. We're going to share a bunch of updates from the road, a bunch of photos, behind-the-scenes live video and Q&A while we're on the road. So tune in for all of that fun stuff. And if you're interested in, in a writing class, I teach a four-week writing class called How to Write Better. Also, a one-day writing workshop. You can find both of those at howtowritebetter.org. And finally, if you want to connect with open-minded, like-minded people in your area, you can go to minimalist.org, and uh, there are 100 free local meetup groups in eight different countries. And if there isn't a meetup group close to you, don't worry. We have a meetup group with an online city, and, and you can meet with the thousands of people who meet there all the time. They share articles. They, they post status updates. They hold each other accountable. They contribute to each other. And they talk about everything from careers and relationships to decluttering and finance and everything in between. Finally, here are some voicemail comments from our listeners from uh, some previous episodes. Hi, my name is Samantha. I'm calling from Columbus, Ohio, and I've been really enjoying this podcast. Um, this message is in response to episode 14, and I have a comment for the question from caller Regal about um, how to stay minimalist while in college. And a system that I developed to minimize the number of notebooks I was carrying around, because this can get confusing if you're, um, if you have a lot of papers in different classes, or if you have a lot of materials, files that your professors expect you to read. Um, my best system is I would have a laptop. I would type all my notes while my professor is talking in the lecture. And this way, because I type faster than I write, I'm able to get more comprehensive notes that's almost conversational as I'm reading them back and helps me remember a lot easier. And um, after this, I also had a Kindle, which I would really recommend, or if you prefer a tablet, I found that the Kindles are easier on my eyes for long reading, and you can also highlight within the Kindle and take notes inside of it. Um, so after I took my notes on a document, I would email them to my Kindle account, and I would do the same thing with the PDF files um, that my professors wanted me to read, because often I had a lot of papers um, to supplement my textbook. Um, so I would send the documents to my Kindle, and then I can carry all of my notes for all of my classes on my Kindle. If it's in my pocket, if it's in my purse, so I can whip it out and read and study any time. And I found I was more likely to go back and review my notes because it was easy to read on a Kindle, I could take them with me, um, and it just made studying a lot easier, but I didn't have to carry around so much. I wanted to leave a comment for the minimalist as something that I found has added a lot of value to my life, especially after I completed uh, the packing party that I did in my room. So I've started my journey of becoming a minimalist myself. And uh, after telling a lot of my friends about this, one of my coworkers suggested this website we have in Toronto, which is called Buns. And it is a trading zone for people who live in Toronto. And at first, I was a little bit apprehensive because as a minimalist, I don't want to be taking on more stuff. But what's great about the site is you can trade for anything. You can trade for food, subway tokens, if you need a new camera, if you're looking for essential oils, you're looking for hand-me-down clothes, literally whatever it is you're looking for, you can find it on this website. And it is absolutely amazing. I haven't spent any money for the past two months. I haven't spent my last two paychecks. 
because uh, I've been getting all my food on buns. I've been getting all my subway tokens on buns. I found, you know, I got a typewriter, which is amazing because I've always, always wanted a typewriter. So it's just, I think, something that is a really cool system that we have in Toronto, and I'm finding that some other cities are starting to catch on. Even one of my friends started their own buns in Montreal. So it's just kind of a neat idea. I know even on Kijiji there is a trading option, and I just think that that's kind of a cool way if you're not necessarily looking for money, you're looking for a particular item that really adds value to your life, then this is something that I found is super, duper cool. Hi, this is Sherry from St. Louis. Um, This is a comment in regards to a question that somebody had on the career podcast episode about getting a second phone um, for work. And um, I just wanted to um, say that if that person doesn't actually want to have a physical second phone, um, I would suggest getting a Google Voice number, which is free. Um, they can set it up so that it calls their cell phone, but you can also um, set up things like do not disturb for certain hours or schedule after hours so that it doesn't ring when you're at home. Um, so instead of having, you know, two physical phones, they can just manage two different phone numbers. Um, it's a little bit different than having a SIM card that you switch out. Um, but they will have to check with their phone plan and their service to see if that would work with Google Voice if there's any other um, overages like data and and things like that. All right, Joe, that's it for this episode. If you have a question for The Minimalists, you can give us a call, 406-219-7839. And if you leave here with just one message, we hope it's this. Love people and use things because the opposite never works. Thanks for listening. Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing that's just feeding your greed. Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it. Every little thing that you gotta have Every little thing that you gotta have You gotta reach for and you gotta grab Oh, I bet that you'll be fine without it So tear your eyes away Or tear